Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful things concerning your Son, which are contained in this, your holy word. Speak to us, we pray. Enable us to listen, to receive, and to put into practice the things of your word that accord to life and godliness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. This is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Now when they, being the magi, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and an errant and inspired word. Well, excepting for the crucifixion, this is one of the saddest and most difficult parts of Matthew's gospel to read. It's the senseless murder of a whole city's worth of baby boys, often referred to by scholars as the slaughter of the innocents. Think with me for a moment about the horror that must have occurred in Bethlehem and the surrounding region when Herod ordered the brutal murder of all baby boys two years old and under. It could not have been a darker moment for the families of Bethlehem. Not a day before nor a day since has caused so much heartbreak and grief. In a previous ministry, a family in our church lost a 10-year-old boy in a tragic farming accident. It was a devastating event. It was absolutely crushing. It was so dark for this sweet family for a long, long time. And they're a delightful family, full of joy, and their children so full of life and energy and fun. The remaining two children were crushed by the loss of their youngest brother. I met with the middle son, the older brother of the young boy who died for nearly two years, week after week attempting to show him Christ and God's hand of providence in the midst of this dark trial. 
The parents remained remarkably strong and faithful, and although they struggled for a time, now as I keep uh, in contact with people back in that place, it seems that they're finally stepping back out into the light five years later. I remember the anguish of this young child's death. I remember it. I can still taste the tears. I imagine many here know this particular pain, whether it be the death of a young child or a loss of a child in the womb. But this text is not about the baby boys in Bethlehem. It's about Christ. And as terrible as the deaths of these children was, it was Christ who was undergoing trial here in his estate of humiliation. We refer to this text as the slaughter of the innocents, but in reality, Jesus was the only innocent person in view in this text. We talk about innocent lives lost when children are killed as casualties of war, collateral damage in war and an accident. But we must remember the words of David in Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David affirms the reality of our sin nature, of being born in sin, of having the, the sin of Adam imputed to us. And so here in Matthew 2, Jesus is the only truly innocent one, and he's the one experiencing the trial and the danger that his life might be taken according to the plan of God ordained for him in his incarnation. And just as Jesus experiences this trial, so too will we experience trials in this life. The darkest night of soul, it's often called. But we must remember the sovereignty and providence of a kind father who withholds no good thing from us and loves us even as much as he loves his own son. And therefore, we can grieve in trials, but not like those who have no hope. Rather, we say with the 17th century theologian and pastor Thomas Fuller, it is always darkest just before the day dawns, and so God visits his servants with the greatest afflictions when he intends for their speedy advancement. Well, this evening I want you to ask yourself, where do I look when my life seems to have gone sideways? Where do I find hope when things seem completely hopeless? Where does the light come from in the darkest night of my soul? Perhaps right now you're on a long straightaway. Have you ever been driving down a road and you know that there's no curves coming and you can see as far as the horizon and you can sort of press the accelerator a little bit and enjoy the sunshine and enjoy the flat, smooth road surface? And maybe that's where God has you right now. There's nothing but sunshine, not a shadow in sight, not a curve on the horizon, not a pothole on the freshly paved road of God's path for you. And if that's you this evening, then you of all people here tonight should rejoice in the kind providence of God. But you know, as I do, that the horizon is only a few miles away. And what lies past it is beyond our ability to see. What happens when you hit the horizon and the potholes begin to multiply and the clouds begin to form, and the mountains begin to rise in the distance, and the long shadows are cast across the road of your journey. What then? Where do you look for hope? Where do you look when things seem as bad as they can possibly be, and to whom do you turn in death's dark valley? How do we handle tremendous difficulties in life and learn to handle them we must, because they're coming? Well, this text gives us three places to look for light in the middle of death's dark valley. 
Three fascinating realities about looking for hope and finding hope and looking for light in the middle of life's difficulties and the darkness that we all experience. First of all, this text commends to us looking for the light in the most peculiar places. The most peculiar places, and in this case, Egypt. It instructs us to look for light in Death's Dark Valley at the look at the most pregnant promises of God in the Bible. Those promises that are full of hope. And it encourages us to look for the most providential provision that God can provide for His people. I'll say those again. We look in the most peculiar places at Scripture's most pregnant promises and for the most providential provision from our God and Father. Well, in this case, the most peculiar place happens to be Egypt. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Now, after the wise men had departed, you remember Herod had instructed them to tell him where they found the baby, this king of the Jews, as they mentioned earlier in the text, so he could come worship him. But in reality, he wanted to come dethrone him to protect his own kingdom. And when they had departed, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went to their own country by another way. And now an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Now we're studying Exodus in our morning worship services in God's providence, and we are now fully aware of how bad things are in Egypt. We understand that Egypt itself is emblematic of oppression, of misery, and of the bitter burden of Israel's slavery. Egypt is not the place we want to go. And here we find God telling Joseph and Mary to take baby Jesus and flee to Egypt for safety. Egypt for safety? Really? That seems to be at least counterintuitive, and at the very best, it's a peculiar suggestion from God. Imagine if our nation's leaders told us that our country was under attack And things were going to be very dangerous here at home for a while, so we should all, if we're able to, purchase plane tickets and fly to Kandahar, wait it out in Kandahar for a while, or maybe Baghdad. Would that make sense to any of us? those, Those cities register for us as bad places. I can promise you, they're bad places you don't want to go visit. And here God is telling Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt for safety? This is very peculiar. Now, why... Does God tell Joseph to go to Egypt? There's a couple reasons, in fact, but the most significant of them for us is this, because our God is God everywhere. Our God is God everywhere. I've been referring a lot recently to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. And what's one of the major points of Stephen's sermon is that when Moses, excuse me, Abram was in Mesopotamia, God was there. And then when he wandered here and there across the land, never owning a single foot's breadth in it, God was with him there. And then when Joseph went down into Egypt, where was God? He was with Joseph in Egypt. And then when Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, where was God? He was with his people in Egypt because our God is God everywhere, everywhere. So when God tells Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt, it's not as strange as it might seem because he's simply telling him to go where God already is. It might seem peculiar to Joseph because Egypt was emblematic of oppression and misery, but Egypt has never been outside the sphere of God's sovereign control. It never was. 
God has always been in control everywhere. If we turn to Romans chapter 9, which we just looked at in our adult Sunday school class over the last couple weeks, we would read that God was the one who raised Pharaoh up over Egypt in order to demonstrate his power in defeating Pharaoh with the plagues at the Exodus. God has always been in control of Egypt, and he was at the time of Jesus' childhood, no less than he was at the time of Israel's exodus. And so God sends Jesus to Egypt for safety, and he's done this in the past, hasn't he? It shouldn't really surprise us that he sends them to Egypt. If we were to turn back to Genesis chapter 45 and 46, which of course I won't read in their entirety, but just to set the context, Joseph has been sent down to Egypt by his wicked brothers. You remember Joseph attributes this providence to God's hand, doesn't he? What you intended for evil, God was the one that sent me here ahead of you to prepare a place for your reception. Well, Joseph's brothers in the famine come to Egypt to find food, and by chapter 45, Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and asks about his father and his, the rest of his family, and they tell him that he's still alive back in the land of Canaan. And so Joseph provides for them a place to live, and he sends for his father in chapter 46. And it says that Israel, that's Jacob and his family, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, and he went down from there to Egypt for safety. God had already sent one Israel down to Egypt for safety in the midst of the threat of death, and now God is sending another Israel down into Egypt for safety under the threat of death. You remember in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, that God, through Moses, tells Pharaoh to let Israel, my firstborn son, go, that he might come out to the wilderness to worship me. God has always referred to Israel, thought of Israel, related to Israel as a father does to a son. And now that the true Israel has appeared, the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, God refers to him, his son, and sends him down to Egypt for the same safety that his firstborn son in the Old Testament experienced. And all this is to fulfill promises that God made through the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is being portrayed for us here in Matthew chapter 2 as the true Israelite, the one who went down to Egypt to be rescued from death and came out at God's command and was returned to the land of Israel to be his son. God is working in the midst of this peculiar situation uh, and sending Jesus down to this most peculiar of places, at least according to an earthly reckoning of the situation, because he is God everywhere and because he is fulfilling his promises to his people. When we find ourselves in the middle of life's night, when we can't see any hope, when we feel like the night will go on forever, we remember that it's always darkest before the dawn although not meteorologically speaking, but because God will provide. When God intends to bring help to his people, he often does it from the most peculiar places, doesn't he? How many people here can point to a previously unsaved spouse that brought them to faith in Christ Jesus? 
How many people here can point back to a, a, a letter that you received or a card in the mail or a message from someone you hadn't heard in a long time that brought you encouragement in the midst of a difficult time in your life? How many of you can point to the miscarriage in somebody else's life that brought you strength and encouragement when you and your spouse went through yours? Or the death in somebody else's family that brought you hope and comfort when you experienced death in yours? Because God brings hope and shines forth light from the most peculiar situations, doesn't he? Do we look at the simple ways that God has previously provided for his people, for hope in our current circumstance? That's what this text encourages us to. God has been in the habit of sending Israel to Egypt for safety and bringing them out at the right time. And that's what he's doing again in this text. And that's what he does for us in our lives. And so when we experience trials, we look to the places where we least expect to find hope and trust that the God who is God everywhere is God for us in our difficult circumstances. And take note again, as we've already said, all of this, all of this, the threat of Jesus' life being taken by Herod in these first couple of verses is in order for God to fulfill promises he made through the prophet Hosea. God is working everything in history out that he might be faithful to all the promises that he had made. Well, when things look the bleakest, we look for God to work in the most peculiar places but we also turn our attention to his word and we find comfort in the most pregnant promises of scripture. Now in verses 16 through 18, we read about the massacre of these young boys. Herod sees that he's been tricked and he becomes furious and he sends and kills all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. In the beginning in verse 17, we read the lament of the prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In its original context, this is speaking of the exile and the misery of watching God's people be uprooted from the promised land and sent off to Babylonian captivity. And this section of Matthew chapter 2 appears to be one long grievous lament. Herod is raging with anger. Young boys are being killed and in the background we hear the wailing cries of their mothers. Where's the hope? Where's their comfort in the midst of a text like this? It's midnight in Bethlehem. The dawn seems as far away as it can be. It is pitch black there are no twinkling stars in the sky. There is no sliver of moon providing light. There is no candle in a window. It is just blackness in Bethlehem. Have you been there? Are you there now? I know some of you have had a tough year or more. I know some of you have had a tough life. I know some here, are, there are men and women who have lost their spouse in recent years, lost a child in recent years, lost a parent, lost hope. A voice was heard in your home weeping in loud lamentation, weeping over your loss, over your pain, feeling like there's no comfort to be found. You need to be reminded that your Savior knows 
that Jesus knows the sound of weeping and lamentation. That Jesus himself knows the searing pain of loss. That he himself wept outside the tomb of his friend. He knows what it's like to cry out to God and say, why have you forsaken me? Where do you look on that night? You look to the promises of God, pregnant with hope and with comfort, overflowing with life and with steadfast love. You look at God's covenant. Turn back with me to the text. Look at verse 17. It says that this whole terrible event was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 20, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. This entire event is a part of God's perfect plan. The most grievous scene in Bethlehem's history is a part of God's perfect plan. And his promises from all the way back in Jeremiah's day prove it. The counsel of God's perfect will works according to the praise of his glory and grace. It's his most holy, wise, and powerful rule over all things that allowed this situation to happen. And so if God is the one who superintends the outworkings of all things in this world, who can we turn to when life goes sideways? Only him. Only him and his promises. Turn with me to Jeremiah uh, chapter 31 for a moment. This is worth our looking at for a, just a minute. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 15, the Lord says, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But that verse takes place in the scope of a larger set of verses that say a lot more than that, don't they? Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God, for after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. The Lord speaks again. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Do you hear the promises of hope in this text? That God has mercy on his people. He never forgets us, even when he disciplines us, even when life goes sideways. And it gets even better. Jump ahead to verse 31. In the context of Rachel weeping, great lamentation over the exile of her people to Babylon, listen to what God says to us through the prophet. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, declares the Lord. Do you see that God is fulfilling his promise in Matthew chapter 2, in the slaughter of these children, in the safe passage of his son Jesus Christ to Egypt and his ultimate return to Nazareth, God is bringing to fruition his promise of a new covenant for you and for me. That's what God is doing. Where do we turn when life goes sideways? We turn to the covenant promises of God, full of hope, full of comfort for us, That's why this weeping gives way to rejoicing in Jeremiah because the son of righteousness is promised. It's why this lamentation breaks into praise because this baby boy who was spared, the only innocent one in this text, he is coming back out of Egypt to redeem his people and provide for them a second exodus, a greater exodus, a new covenant in which the core promise of the covenant of grace will be fully and finally realized. What is that core promise of the covenant of grace? I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. God is superintending this entire account, the slaughter of the innocents, the fleeing of Joseph with baby Jesus and his mother Mary, the return to Nazareth in the next portion of our text, All of it is happening that God might accomplish his promise to write his law on our hearts, to wash us with clean water and sprinkle us clean that we might be cleansed from all our uncleannesses, to put a new heart and a new spirit inside of us, to be God to us and to make us his. Where do we look when things get tough? To the covenant-keeping promises of God. Look at all that he's done for you. Look at all that he's done for us. This baby boy who flees in verse 14, and Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He is not safe. He's just in Egypt. Because he's going to come back and grow up in Nazareth and wander up and down the breadth and length of Israel for a couple of years, and then be brutally murdered on a cross. He is not safe. He's just in Egypt for a while. And all of the difficulties that we experience in this life, and all of the trials and darkness that we go through pale in comparison to the only innocent, holy Son of God being crucified and absorbing the wrath of God for our sin. We look to the promises of God because they're the promises of a God who loves us so much that he let his son experience the darkest night of soul for our salvation. Where do you look when life goes sideways? You look to the promises of a God who is immutable and covenantally faithful. That's where we begin to feel the dawn breaking into the night. I remember years ago and and I keep referring to this, I'm going to have to find another portion of my life to refer to here from the pulpit. But uh, we would annually go to the rifle range for annual qualification in the military. And the rifle range, as far as I could tell, now I, don't, I never planned a rifle range, but I'm pretty sure they were only held in the coldest week of the year. It was part of the uh, process, I think, to toughen us up. But we would arrive 
hours before necessary and would stand there in a small circle huddled together like penguins uh, trying to keep from freezing to death before the sun came up. And as soon as the sun came up, what did we all do? Everyone turned their back to the sun and went like this. Why? Because you get the warmth of the sun on your clothes touching the skin of your body and it begins to warm you up. You've done that before, right? Have you ever seen those videos of the meerkats in Africa? What do they do in the morning? They climb up on the rocks and they go like this. Because they're absorbing all the, the warmth of the sun. Where does that happen to us when life is difficult? The sun, that warmth, that rifle range sun rising over the mountains of Southern California, that happens in the covenant promises of God. And our hearts begin to be warmed by a God who loves us and keeps his promises. So we look for hope in peculiar places. And we look for hope in the pregnant promises of the covenant of grace. And we look for God's providential provision for us, his special people. Look with me at verses 19 through 23. Herod dies. That's a seemingly innocent phrase. It's a part of life, isn't it? Herod died. It's the last thing we know about him. His life was ended. But make no mistake, Herod's death happened according to the will and plan of God. The fact that Herod died is simply a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Joseph back in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, where he says, Herod is about to search for him and remain there until I call you back, until Herod's death. And so Herod dies. That's a providence of God. It's a provision of God for Jesus, his son, that he might return to the land of Israel. The installation of Herod's incompetent and brutal son, Archelaus, is also a part of God's providential provision for Jesus. Jesus was the king. For all intents and purposes, he should have gone to Jerusalem and established residence in a palace, or at least gone back to Bethlehem and established residence in the city of David from which his lineage came. But instead, God had something different in mind for him, and he begins to orchestrate and move and superintend the goings-on of our world to put Jesus in the exact village he's supposed to grow up in. That's all God's providential provision, isn't it? Jesus is now free to return to Israel. Out of Egypt, he's been called. He comes back to the promised land. And now, so precise and careful is God that Jesus goes exactly where he's supposed to do, that he dispatches his angels to ensure that Christ grows up in Nazareth. Look at with me at verse 16, or verse 20, uh, or verse 19, excuse me, an angel again of the Lord appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, take the child back to Israel, for the life of those who sought him are now, or those who sought his life are now dead. But he hears that Archelaus is reigning over Judea in the place of his father, and he's afraid to go there. Why? Because Archelaus was even worse than his father was. And Joseph says, I don't want to go back there because he's going to be terrible to live under, and the boy's life will be in danger again. And the angel confirms his instinct by appearing to him again in a dream and telling him to withdraw to the region of Galilee. God is laying to bed one bad ruler, raising up another bad ruler, dispatching angels to speak to Joseph, to send him to a little obscure village in the north part of Galilee, all so that way Jesus would end up exactly where God wanted him. Do you see how he's doing this? Do you see the hand of God moving behind the scenes? 
Do you see how God is shifting people and raising people up and laying people down and moving his son exactly where he wants him? Do you not understand that that's exactly how he works in your life as well? Now, we don't expect angels to come to us and tell us to go from this place to that or not go to that town or whatever it might be, but God is certainly continually in the business of guiding all of our footsteps. And so when life is difficult and when trials come, And when circumstances seem bleak and when the night seems long, we must remember that God is providentially providing every moment of our lives exactly what they need to lead us where he intends us to go. And because we can only see as far as the noses on our face, we often find ourselves frustrated or fearful that we don't know where this moment is taking me. But don't forget what we said about Egypt. God is God everywhere. And here's another fantastic truth about our God. He's also God every when, not just everywhere. He's God yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can trust him with tomorrow. We can trust him with 10 years from now. We can trust him with our children's old age. We can trust him with our great-grandchildren's fidelity to him and his son. Because he's God everywhere and every when. Now, many have wondered what Matthew's talking about in verse 23. Look with me at verse 23. And he went, this is Joseph and his family, specifically Jesus, and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, of course, there's no single such statement in the Old Testament, is there? I'm sure many of you have looked for it before or perhaps read your footnotes in your Bible or some commentaries and try to find that great Old Testament passage about Jesus being a Nazarene. I think it's right next to the one about the footprints in the sand. There is no such single statement in the Old Testament, but there is a messianic expectation that he wouldn't be much to look at and he wouldn't be very impressive and he wouldn't be much to talk about because of where he came from and who he was. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, it tells us that the suffering servant, the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ, would be so little to look at that people wouldn't even pay him any attention. He'd be nothing to be impressed by, nothing to consider worth noticing. And this is exactly what we find in John chapter 1. If you're uh, uh, familiar with this passage, Jesus is calling his first disciples in John chapter 1, uh, after the testimony of John the Baptist, and he uh, initially, he calls uh, a couple of them, uh, Simon, who he calls Kephas or Peter. And then in the next part, here in verse 43, he decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and says, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what Matthew's talking about here. This is why he says the prophets rather than one of the prophets, a particular one. He says what was spoken by the prophets. The entire narrative of the Old Testament points us to the fact that Jesus is going to be from the place nobody cares about, and he's going to look like nobody worth caring about. And so he goes to Nazareth. If he had said, we found the one that the prophets talked about in Moses, Jesus from Jerusalem, Nathaniel would have gone, oh, interesting, the king. 
Or Jesus from Bethlehem, the city of David, he would have gone, oh, I see the connection there with David, the covenant promises. But he said, Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathanael said, really? Nazareth? All to fulfill what God had said about his son, that he would be nothing impressive, nothing special to look at. He didn't grow up in a royal home or around the hustle and bustle of a large city. He didn't have a wide-reaching influence or reputation by the time he reached adulthood. He was just a plain guy from a little village in Galilee. But God in his providential provision had been giving him the perfect place to grow up. He had kept him from all the wrong places where he shouldn't grow up. He had equipped him to be strong physically, to have compassion on the ordinary outcast folks, and to be preserved from death as an infant. Do you see God's hand moving behind the scenes to care for his son, Jesus Christ? Where is God moving behind the scenes in your life that you failed to notice it? I know when life is hardest, it's easy to miss those details of God's hand moving behind the scenes. There's a, a memory tool used by the military called a Kim's game. Kim, K-I-M, keep in mind. And what they do is they take a bucket of items and they dump them on the ground. And you've got 30 or 60 or 90 seconds to look at them without touching them. And then they cover them up and you have to turn around and write down as many as you can on a scratch of paper. And the idea is to train your mind to be uh, uh, observant and to have attention to detail and to see the little things and, and take notice of the minute details. And a Kim's game becomes easy after a while. You just, your memory develops and you learn how to keep these things in mind. But if they really want to turn up the heat, they show you the items and then they cover them up and then they make you sprint 400 meters that way, low crawl 400 meters back, do 100 jumping jacks, 25 pull-ups, and then write all the items down. And that's what life is like in the darkness, isn't it? That's what life is like for us concerning the promises of God when life is hard. It's like a Kim's game concerning the promises of God, but we've just done a hundred jumping jacks. It's harder to recall the details in the midst of chaos, and it's harder to see the hand of providence in the midst of suffering. But make no mistake, God's hand is always providing, protecting, and providentially guiding all things to work out for his glory and our good. And unlike soldiers trying to remember items in a game, we have been given Jeremiah 31, the Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us, to etch the truths of God's covenant on our hearts that we might never forget them, that when life goes sideways, and it will, we'll have the hope of Christ firmly written on our souls. Where do we look in the middle of life's dark nights? We look to those peculiar and sometimes ordinary places that God uses for our comfort. We remember his precious promises, pregnant with hope and joy and help in life, promises of eternal life, promises of a, an inheritance, promises of our glorification, of the covenant of grace, that he is and always will be our God, and that we are and ever will be his sons and daughters. And we look for the hand of providence, providing for our every need, even when his hand is veiled by the clouds of despair and sorrow, we see the outline of his hand behind the clouds. And we find comfort and hope and joy in knowing that the almighty and ever-present God of the Bible upholds us with his hand. He upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules over them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness 
prosperity and poverty, all things indeed come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you for your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.